Hi, everybody. Welcome to Evil Chat number 13. Um, once again, apologize for the uh, delay and putting some of these out. Just, you know, that time of year, busy coaching, doing everything and trying to get to these as fast as I can. I, as I said, I think before, I still have a lot in the bag ready to go and I'm still sending, you know, arranging new discussions with people. But um, yeah, I don't always get time to sort of... Uh, uh, put it all together and get it up quickly. So sorry about that. Um, today is my last one uh, that I had pre-recorded with Mr. McMillan. Um, so, but him and he's gonna he has he's as busy as I am, or probably more so. Or he thinks he's more busy than I am, as usual. Um, and he is. Uh, so he's not going to be able to do any for a bit, a couple of weeks at least before we get into this. So this will be the last one for a bit, but I have lots of other ones coming up. Anyways, um, I also uh, have my dog on my lap here right now because if I don't put him on my lap, he makes so much noise that I can't record during the day. So he's here, of course, in my lap. He's quiet. He's not saying anything. Say, say hi. Ben, say hi. Say hi to everybody. Yeah, he said, he's just licking me. Anyways. Ah, oh, man, uh, this dog drives me crazy. I, uh, I went to, my, my son is in this, uh, or one of his ensembles that he plays with in his little, uh, you know, he's a, he's a jazz drummer. But anyways, this one ensemble he plays with, he goes down to Hyde Park uh, to this gallery every Wednesday, and it's Thursday the 6th of May as I record this, and he... Um, he, uh, I drove him down there last night and the dog came with us uh, and I forgot to take a leaf. Yeah, yeah, hang on. And, uh, anyway, so this gallery's in this kind of like, uh, it's right by a busy street on a sort of a mall, like an outdoor mall type of thing. And I took the dog in there and the dog freaked out cause of the music I went back to, when I went back to pick, uh, my son up and. So we got out of the gallery. I put the dog down, you know, I figured he wouldn't get too far from me as we walked back to the car. Got Dog takes off, won't come back to me. Security guard for the area comes along, this woman. Her name is Catherine, and uh, helps me try to lure him back. He won't. So we finally get, get him into a corner. He isn't coming anywhere near me. So he decides to go over to her, but he's skittish. So she <laughs> she tackles him and wraps her arms around him. He's, he's like a 20-pound dog, right? And he, uh, so he bites her and then pisses all over her, like all over her uniform, all over the, oh, God. So anyways, I don't know which one I felt more sorry for, but anyways, so he kind of drives me crazy. But anyways, uh, so that leads me into uh, just a shout out that I want to give prior to uh, doing this with Stu. So about, I guess about a year ago, I was walking this dog out front of my place. And uh, as I'm coming home uh, to my house, just outside my house, we have this gate, a fence and a gate. Uh, outside of our place on the side or there's this guy standing there and he's got this cat on a leash and he's walking his cat he's not he's not actually walking it it's like the cat's lying down sunbathing on its back and he's sort of standing there i guess waiting for it to move and yeah i've seen this guy walking his cat around the neighborhood and i've seen this guy's wife walking the cat around the neighborhood 
And uh, anyway, so we, of course, we, we start chatting. And my dog at the time, I, that was the first time he'd ever seen a cat, never seen a cat before. He was, he was only a few months old. And uh, so we start chatting, and it turns out this guy is a therapist, um, uh, a physical therapist, not, and not just any physical therapist. You know, we start chatting, I, and, you know, I told him, oh, yeah, I have some experience, you know, in track and field. At, and, you know, I've done a little bit of therapy in my time. I, I was actually snuck in. I got certified at ART at one point, and uh, I was telling him that. And he, and he starts, you know, telling, telling me his experience and his credentials. And he, this guy worked with Guy Boyer, who, if you don't know who he, who he is, he's a French uh, therapist that has come up with this. Uh, it's called an Eldoa system of uh, therapy uh and i believe this guy his name's andrew anderson and he runs a a uh, a company called enzo health and fitness in chicago anyway so i was like oh i know i know who givoye is because i'd heard dan paff talk about him and a number of other therapists i mean this guy's big time right like this guy's a big name and Anyways, and I guess he's the only uh, Chicago guy certified in this. And he, this guy was like shocked he, that, you know, and it turns out this guy lives like uh, on my street the next block over. So anyway, so, uh, you know, I said, I, you know, we chatted and blah, blah, blah. And I guess he was pretty surprised to find anybody that knew that name. Um, I was surprised to have uh, such a competent therapist living down the street from me, which I thought was interesting because I'm always, you know. Anyways, a year later, uh, with this uh, hammer throw I'm working with now, uh, um, you know, there uh, we were in need of a therapist at one point, and so usually when that happens, I call up the people I know and I say, "Hey, who do you know in Chicago?" And I'd forgotten about this guy, and uh, I call up Dan and. <clears throat> We were, he was, you know, trying to think of somebody. And then all of a sudden this guy popped into my head and I said, yeah, I saw this guy walking a cat and he, you know, he said he was Boye trained and Dan said, that's the guy you got to go see. So I forgot his name, forgot his company, but I, after some research on the internet, I found him and, uh, yeah, we've been going to him ever since he's doing a bang up job and, uh, really doing good work with my athletes so the name is andrew anderson enzo health health and fitness if you're in chicago and you're looking for a, a high-end therapist um you know one of the guys that's top top shelf this is probably one of your best options for sure so just give him a shot i'm not getting anything for this does he doesn't even know i'm doing it so he's never gonna listen to the podcast so it's not uh, i'm not selling anything so all right, so today, we, Stu and I, we go at it on this one, uh, talking a lot about um, <clears throat> about training in sprints, sort of the, the purpose was to sort of get his philosophy on speed training, and uh, I think we did that in a roundabout way, talk a lot about uh, intensive tempo training, dribbles, and the whole thing. So anyways, I won't keep you any longer on the intro, it's been long enough. Uh, oh yeah, one other thing is uh, this was recorded back in the winter. It was months ago. There's still snow on the ground, so just keep that in mind because we talk about a few things where that's uh, that's kind of relevant. So, for better or for worse, here is Evil Chat number thirteen, my fifth discussion with Stu McMillan. So we the last 
time we spoke. We we and and if you hear a dog barking in the background, my apologies. It's my dog. But anyways, um, we left talking about we had a big talk about the Jamaican system and Anaso uh, going to the Texas group and training with Ronnie Baker. And we were talking about the differences, you know, between those two uh, approaches to sprint training, you know, one being the high, the highly intensive, highly specific sort of year round uh, method or approach and the, you know, very, um, you know, more traditional approach that the Jamaicans take now. And then we started, we, I think we closed it off talking about, uh, you, you made some interesting comments regarding using, um, dribbles, your, you know, how you use dribbles, uh, as a, if I understand it right, as a, as a, you know, a, a way to practice the skill or uh, develop the skill of sprinting um, without, you know, having to go to those high intensities all the time. Am I am I interpreting this right? Um, and I, at one point, I think you suggested, you know, as a, almost like a functioning sort of the way that tempo does in some programs, except it's far more, you know, it, it, it has far more value in terms of skill acquisition. And I think we kind of left it yeah. off there. And I guess, I Theoreti guess. Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. 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 yeah this yeah. is all theoretically. Right. Yeah. But, um, and I think that kind of leads us into, you know, what one of my major questions was when we started this whole podcast thing, which was, you know, just a discussion on your basic, your philosophy on sprint development and what it looks like in your program. Am I right? Or, or, or did we have that discussion? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot to talk about. One is, is I've always been, you know, think back to kind of where I started as a sprint coach. And there was this, you know, you're either in the tempo camp or not in the tempo camp. And it seemed like, at least back then, that the people that were not doing tempo were kind of the, you know, the more science-based guys that needed to try to find some sort of scientific justifications for everything that existed in their program, right? And because it's hard to justify doing work at 65 to 70%, you know, 2,000 meters of this work, um, for sprint athletes that have to do 10 to 20 seconds of work, much of those coaches, you know, the science-based coaches, weren't really, you know, Temple didn't really exist within their programming. So it never really, because that's the kind of, that's the setup I was brought up in, in having to try to justify everything that we did. And so it, I never did tempo, right? And I remember in, the, in some of the old forums, it might have been uh, Mike Young's Elite Track Forum, talking about tempo or not to tempo, right? And I was, you know, we, we do, um, you know, low-intensity work in the, in the form of general strength circuits or medicine ball circuits or things like that. But we didn't really do tempo because it, for, for me, it just looked like it was sloppy running. And I never really wanted these, you know, these athletes who 
are, are really trying to explore the edges of what's possible in sprinting, which requires, you know, which means you really need to move with, with mm -hmm. the highest amount of uh, effectiveness and efficiency as possible. I never really wanted to, to have them doing stuff poorly. And all tempo seemed to be to me was crappy, sloppy running. That doesn't. That was not even sprinting, right? It was. It wasn't even striding. It was basically just fast running. So well, in, okay, okay. There's a couple intu things. There. Intuitively, I'm not done. <laughs> in, intuitively, it didn't really make sense for me. So I did. I didn't do it, and I didn't really even think about why others did it. Which was not good, right? That's that's uh, you know a, a bit of a, a you know a fault in. In, in my thinking at the time, a little bit of lack of humility in, 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 in this sense, because I was, you know, I'm a young coach, right, 25, 30 years old, and you kind of think you know everything. You think, all right, I can't justify this with all of the stuff that I know. How can you? Where not, and just totally ignoring the empirical standpoint of this and, and experiential standpoint of, of coaches who have been using tempo successfully in their training for, for decades. What I really should have done is what is it about this form of, of um, training that seems to be working quite well for many, many coaches and many, many athletes, which is, which is where I eventually got to with tempo. And that sort of led me into thinking that, okay, maybe there's a modal learning effect here, which, okay, now can we do this better? Can we, can we ensure that it is, it is more transferable? maybe a little bit more specific, which led to higher volumes of doing um, dribble progressions. So which for me is a better way to do or a better way to take advantage of some of the justifications that I think we may be getting from tempo other than some of the other work capacity justifications. So, Can I just sorry, cut in there for one second? I'm you, not, not going to yep. go off on anything. I just, I just think it's, to me, the, as soon as you start talking about tempo, there's... In my mind, there's two types, right? There's the more extensive sort of recovery-based tempo, which is one of the reasons why people do it, as far as I understand. And then there's the intensive tempo, which is of a higher intensity, more structured in terms of the, the workouts and the training. Um, I've always seen, especially when you're talking about something like... Uh, uh, um, polarized training it's the intensive stuff that is the issue usually because it's it's not specific enough to transfer to to high level sprinting but it's not general enough to be um really only giving you a recovery effect in fact it is it has quite an impact on an athlete's recovery so which type of tempo are, are you talking about all of it in general or, or are you no, talking I, I, about I'm, one of those specific forms? Yeah, I'm, of I'm talking more specifically uh, about extensive tempo. Okay. And I, I, I don't buy the argument against intensive tempo. Um, Why? But for, for many years, because uh, it's dumb. For many years, <laughs> extensive tempo... Um, okay, like, well, like we'll say, didn't, let's it, come back to intensive tempo then, because I yeah, I, we will. I'm not going to leave it at just that, Derek. Yeah, yeah well, it sounded like you were going to. 
but it's okay. Yeah, but I won't. You, you know that. I know. Um, yeah, so extensive tempo didn't exist in my in my training because it's, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I just really couldn't justify it. And, and, and with the lack of humility that maybe I had at the time, and, and you know, if you, if you use as a heuristic that there's so much more that we don't know than what we do know, that kind of gives you a little bit of space and room and time for, for other stuff that you may not yet understand. And you just, uh, you know, it gives you probably a better starting point then to try to understand why these things exist, which is, and it's still, I may not, I, I, I may be totally out to lunch, right? I just feel that probably more of the, um, you know, the benefit that we get from doing tempo type work, extensive tempo type work, will be just making that the specific skill, and I know it's not specific to sprinting, but if you break down the, 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 uh, the component parts of sprinting, there's actually a lot of the, the specific skill is very specific, or a lot of the skill of tempo training is very specific to uh, sprinting in spikes at maximum speed when you break down the component parts, you know, whether it's ground contact, to the fluidity, you know, the... the um, the movement the, flow, the, rotation, the, 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 the whole, the whole flow around it. There's a lot of stuff there that's very, very similar, right? So it's, it's may may not look like sprinting, it may not feel like sprinting, but when you break it down to its part, there's a lot of parts within it that is really specific, and then you would think that then is very transferable. Now, I think still that some of the dribble progressions are more specific, more transferable. But then the question becomes, well, are, they, are we just competing for the same resources, right? So it's, um, you know, if we're sprinting and then on our, our low intensity days on our, of our more polarized program, or if we're dribbling on those days, are we just not now, are we just breaking into that recovery, right? We're, 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 we're doing work that is too similar to our high intensity days, which is kind of where I've ended up at. You know, so I will still have dribbling days, but those aren't really necessarily recovery days for me because they are pretty specific or pretty similar to the type of work that we will do on our high intensity sprinting days. Can so you I'd give me an now, idea of they are, the? They are, they can you are, give me an um, idea of the of the parameters around dribbling in terms yeah, of distance? I was just about to, man. Why are you always interrupting me? I'm getting there. Okay. All right. So. God dang, now you, you messed so up my flow. I don't know where I'm at. Uh, All right, yeah, go ahead. This, this is a conversation. Um, <clears throat> Jesus Christ. So, so now, rather than dribbles being on a down day or a recovery day or a regeneration day where you could potentially traditionally have put extensive tempo, my dribble days are more technical days, technical focus days, where maybe I don't want to hit the, you know, the central nervous system uh, uh, super hard, but I still want to get a real nice, um, nice uh, um, uh, load in there. Uh, but and I really want to focus on some technical things. So like that could be something like, you know, depending on where we're at and where, where we're at in the season, you know, it could be just... 60 meter dribbles over the calf, for example. There's, there's three ways in which we generally define dribbles and, and by their ranges of motion. So it's a dribble is a truncated sprint, right? So a sprint is a full sprint, full over the knee sprinting, 
with, uh, with horizontal application of force and a vertical application of force and moving fairly fast. A dribble, by definition, is anything that's smaller than that. So there's less horizontal And you're talking about the cycle that the foot takes in a, in a, in a normal, in, in a sprinting Correct. motion, right? Correct, in relation to the standing leg. So it's the way in which we sort of categorize them. You've got dribbles over the knee, which is, you know, closest uh, to the to the full sprint. You're just not pushing back as hard. You may not be applying as much force. You're sprinting over the calf, which is truncated uh, even more, so a smaller range of motion. And then you're dribbling over the the uh, ankle, which is which is the smallest one. And then um, and then we build you know uh, workout schemes based upon those three ranges of motion, uh, based also on their on their relative frequencies. So, you know, we, we may want to, and I've, I've done this actually with a few athletes where you can do what we call a speed dribble because you can dribble over the calf way faster from a, uh, a stride frequency standpoint or a step frequency standpoint than you can when you're sprinting, right? So if you want to quote unquote overload stride frequency, you can do that just by stepping over the calf. I've had guys, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, hit, you know, in excess of six hertz um, over the over the calf. That's six and running, cycles per second. Six cycles per second, and running up to eleven meters a second over the over the calf at six hertz. So there's, you know, there's something happening within that, right? right. So it's um, and that's and that is also really really intense. So that's not a technical day. That would be an, an example of where you could use dribbles on a speed day. Maybe you've got something that's uh, all right. I'm not real comfortable with you know open allowing this guy to fully open up right now because of x maybe we're late stage rehab but i'm i can i'm comfortable with him just stepping over the calf i'm pretty comfortable with high high frequency just not high high range of motion so i'm going to do some speed work it's just i'm just going to limit his range of motion so you can still get very very similar adaptations from doing speed dribbles over calf for example than you would have if you're doing all-out speed work so but generally, that's not what it looks like. Generally, it's, uh, you know, we might do a, a, a dribble bleed, for example, where you'll do the first 10 or 15 meters over the ankle, and you'll slowly increase the range of motion up over the calf, and then over the knee, and then open it up into a stride. And then it allows the athlete then to engage with all of the different ranges of motion and understand where there may be, all right, you know, I, I feel really comfortable over the calf. I feel really comfortable over the knee. I feel comfortable striding, but that little dribble over the, over the ankle, there's something going on there. It's just, I feel funky on the right side. The left side feels like it's really fluid, but the right side isn't. So there's some sort of perceptive gap going on there, right? There's something in their brain that's not really connected, connecting well with the, when the foot is just stepping over the ankle, say, on the right side. So that might be an opportunity there, that, that, that uh, feeling that the athlete has and how that, that then the athlete communicates that feeling to the athlete, that may be an opportunity to, to really dig into, okay, what's going on here? And is there potential that this athlete might be hurting themselves? And, you know, they can't, they've got a lack of, of proprioception or proprioceptive feel at, when they're stepping over the calf. Um, so it gives us some idea of where to go with some, you know, some therapy, for example, or some corrective type exercises, or, you know, maybe we just do more of uh, dribbling over the ankle. Um, well, I was going to ask you earlier, but I was afraid to get yelled at. Um, 
but you know, I never yell at you, Derek. So, so never. yeah, sure. So those are the so those are the basic. You know, uh, I my question, and you've answered it largely, but is was why would you use one over the other, ankle, knee, or or sorry, ankle, calf, or knee? And is it simply? It, it depends on the frequency that you. I mean, I mean, generally yeah, it, speaking. Well, it, it, Everything depends upon the objective, right? So what are we doing? Like what, why are we doing it? So if we're, okay, we want to work on some compliance maybe. You know, we have an athlete that's just not really oscillating super well. So they're hitting and they're not pushing vertically. And we want them to, to learn or to feel how to bounce better down the track. So what I might do with that is some bouncing dribbles over the calf. Right, so if you just step step over the calf and you think about being on the ground a little bit longer and you push more vertically, and we just kind of bounce. It's like it's the way in which I. But why uh, would you do the calf as opposed about, to the knee? It'd be, be, it's it a just gives you a question. bit more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it gives you more time to recover the foot to get it in the place that you want it to be, so you okay. can contact the ground at the right time at the right place to get vertical but not too much time where you might just overdo it and get over-rotated. So it's if, you, if you try to do bouncing dribbles over the knee, that's really quite difficult, right? It's like it's, 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 it's difficult for a lot of sprinters to bounce when they're sprinting, and they just end up being really, really flat, right? We, it's when, it, when we know it's kind of important to spend a little bit longer, for some, for some athletes, to spend a little bit longer in the air. So if we want to work on that, like a bouncing dribble over the calf is something that they can, you know... Um, something that they can perform to start to feel what it's like to quote unquote bounce. So that's, that's one way to do it. Right. Another way is, is, is like we said, if we have, um, sprinters that, that over plantar flex, you know, so, okay, we can slow that down. We can, you know, all the dribbles are, 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 like I said, they're truncated ranges of motion. Generally they are generally they're slower, um, uh, stride frequencies as well. So if we can s slightly slow down that skill somewhat, could be a little bit easier for them to feel the position of the foot in both on the ground and in the air. So we'll start with okay, we'll go over the over the ankle here. It's easier for you to maintain dorsiflexion throughout the cycle. We'll slowly build that into over the calf. We'll build that into over the knee, and then into a a dribble bleed, and then eventually into a full stride. And ideally, hopefully, we've got better understanding of how that. Um, ankle flexes and, and extends throughout the cycle and a more appropriate dorsiflexion prior to uh, or at ground, ground contact. Just, uh, I should probably know this, but um, remind me what the what the frequency, stride frequency or the hertz is, uh, the cycle frequency for a world-class sprinter, say someone under 10 seconds. I mean, it's going to depend upon their stride length, obviously, but generally, like what's ballpark? Yeah, between for men between four point five and yeah for men between four point five and five, so the you know the taller guys are going to be close to four point five four point six. So on on Bolt's nine fifty eight, I think he was four point five eight or something, right? Mm -hmm. And then his his average stride length at max uh, V was like two hundred seventy four centimeters, something crazy wow. like that. Okay. And but some of the some of the shorter guys, some of the guys who spin really really well, like a Christian Coleman, he's closer to five. So he's like five, four point nine four, four point nine five hertz, right. where the women generally have a, a slightly higher stride frequency than the men. They're somewhere generally between sort of four point seven, four point eight, and five point one, five point two. 
So have you measured the, I'm sure you have, but have you measured the frequency of some of your athletes doing dribbles and compared it to their frequency in their best races? Or are, are they actually able to go? It sounds like you said six before. Yeah, no, abso- absolutely. Not, so I've had a couple, able to go couple guys. Yeah, I had the, my, the best speed dribbler that I've ever had has been a Canadian sprinter, Akeem Haynes, um, who's a, a bronze medalist in the relay in Rio. And he, he hit 6.2 steps per second. And at, at, in, at about 10.4, 10.5 meters a second at that. So it's just rolling right now. That's there. I've never had anybody else who can get, come even close to that. Dwayne Chambers back in the UK um, uh, got just short of six, but hit 11.4 meters a second at like a, a frequency of 5.7, 5.8. So, so, it's, um, so that's significantly more. That's, like, that's a significant overload to what they do when they're actually sprinting. Do, do you not worry about that? And, and I'm sure it's probably a concern, but do you not worry about, uh, you know, um, when you're doing these, that a long-term effect, like it may come at the cost of stride length? Like that they may get too choppy, uh, to use a sort of a layman term. Like no, because I don't, I don't think we do enough of them to really there's, that there's going to be a negative del- deleterious effect. You know, we we generally, you know, it's we we separated enough where it, we we may use it as a primer, for example, prior to a a sprint run. You know, especially with somebody who may on both ends of the spectrum. If you've got somebody that really needs to work on frequency, this is one way for them to feel like they're, right. you know, that they can spin. If you've got somebody who's fast because of frequency, then there's, there may be another reason to prime them that way, right? They, they want to feel good going into a full-out sprint. But generally, when you just just sprint as fast as you can, you know, kind of you kind of self-select both frequency and, and length, right? You just run. And I don't, try to really constrain them in either of those senses when they're just sprinting i just try to set up you know other parts of the of the run rather than talk about frequency and length i would in, be in almost I, in almost every case i mean i've had a couple of guys and that's it's been real challenging i can't remember if we talked about it but i had I, one guy amir webb who um who's got the fastest ground contact time probably on the planet of, of all the elite male sprinters he had contact time of a point oh eight oh, but his his air time, which is ridiculously fast. You know, if you most of the rest of the elite sprinters are are high oh eights, so it might be oh eight seven oh eight nine up to oh nine oh, where he's oh eight oh, so just ridiculously fast off the ground, but spends way too long in the air, right? He's sort of 0.147 to 0.15 in the air where most of the rest of the elite sprinters are under 0.13. So he just sort of bounds down the ground or down the track. So if you watch a mere sprint, it looks like he's almost bounding, right? It looks pretty. It's really nice. He bounces really, really well. And it's the reason why he's really fast because he's such a great bouncer or bounder. But it's also his, you know, sometimes your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, right? Mm-hmm. His greatest strength is that ability, but it's also what limits him because he's just in the air for too long. We know if we're in the air, we're not applying force, right? So we kind of want to be on the, we, ideally, you, you lengthen him out a little bit on the ground, which can shorten his time in the air. But this is, like, this is his unique stride signature that's been the way in which he's solved this sprinting puzzle 
for he's 28 years old. So for probably 15 years, right? This is the way he runs. Mm -hmm. So for us to go in there then and try to affect this, that's super challenging, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about just let the guy sprint generally, right? We, mm -hmm. we, with, with, uh, ensuring obviously that we do it safely, but, but um, just letting them sprint. So it's, I, I actually did try, we have tried um, a couple of times to affect that, but I'm just, I'm not comfortable with what would be required to make a significant enough difference um, to that, you know, and I think what, what would be required, and this is where a lot of coaches don't really respect uh, this process, is if we say he's 25, which is when we first started looking at it, if we're trying to look at trying to affect and change what is a fairly innate skill like sprinting and trying to change the mechanics of that significantly, we're looking at a at least a year-long process, probably longer, with no guarantee that it's going to work. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, all right, do you do this with an elite sprinter whose job is this? Where the risk is, if this does work, maybe he runs 9.8 instead of 9.9 or 9.7 instead of 9.9. But if it doesn't, you've just wasted a year, wasted two years, and he's worse. And now he's just confused or he's hurt. You know, so that's the like that's a real, real hard question to answer. It, it's just that's an easier question for you know less innate skills, non you know less rhythmical skills, where it's like something like throwing a hammer, right? That's uh, we don't we don't grow up throwing hammers every day like we do growing up running every day. So it's 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 things that we can probably more easily change. You know, changing a technique of somebody who's who's throwing a hammer is is probably significantly less risky than changing a oh, sprinter's technique. Oh, but it's technique. so difficult. For for well, we uh, see that we see that with, with same, for many of the yeah, same we, reasons. So so yeah, yeah. so he, here's the thing, right? So here's the way I look at it. like I think if you're going to try to make changes uh, to an athlete at that level, I think if the changes are such are changes that will that are purposeful in that the goal is to lead to better movement flow then they'll work but if they're if they're changes that are in in terms of their purpose is to be more mechanical you know what i mean like hitting like specifically hitting positions then that's much harder that's that's mm -hmm. because it will affect the movement flow and if you and that's that's you know we we that's the pro, that's the whole problem in the hammer right if you you know it's it's not all that difficult to get athletes into the positions you want and have them do it and have them do it over and over again but if at some point it does not lead to a change in the rhythm, a positive change to the rhythm and uh, and the movement flow and that, you know, by movement flow, I mean that quality of relaxed, efficient force application. Yeah, so, so the question is, how do you true. know if it will or not going in? Right. Well, yeah, Cause you no, know you that that takes time. So you've got well, to commit to a certain too, right? amount of time. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and, uh, you know, but I mean, for, for us, I mean, for me, it's a matter of hitting, you know, just trying to just going at it and, you know, saying, 
okay, we're, we're working on this, we're working on this, we're working on this, and say you're doing 20 throws in a session, you're going to say, and I'm doing this right now with this new athlete I'm coaching where we're, we, we're completely dissecting her technique. I'm throwing a whole bunch of, you know, I'm breaking all of the teaching rules, coaching rules. I'm throwing a whole bunch of different concepts at her. I'm seeing what's going to stick against, the, you know, what's going to lead to an effective change in terms of the mechanic or the, or the positions I want her in. But then at the end, if we're doing 20 throws, well, actually, we're doing 12, so I'll have her do, um, you know, the last four, I'll just let her go. I'll just don't think, just throw, right? And those are the furthest still, right? And, and you know, slowly, I hope my goal is to see that what we're working on in those first eight throws slowly creeps into these, the last four throws over time, and, and it is, but it's, it's so difficult to do. You know, I was, I was, there's a question I had for you. So are, do you, do you consider these dribbles to be sprinting or drills? Um, both. <laughs> yeah, both. Okay. But I mean, I could see the over the knee being considered sprinting. No, it's, it, they're all sprinting. I mean, it's, 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 it's. It's 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 a bit of both. It's it's I, I don't want to leave the um, uh, the, uh, the 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 changing a technique thing kind of hanging there uh, okay. either. I don't want to, I want to ensure that we don't leave that uh, thread just just like I said, just hanging there. Um, I, I I just want to really ensure that folks understand. Like if you're trying to rebuild a technique, like taking a technique and all right, we we have to overhaul this thing. You're signing up for a minimum of a year-long process. Oh, at least. At yeah. least, a minimum of a year-long process. You know, ass assuming you're, we're, you're, we're trying to do this with uh, an already sort of matured athlete. It, it may be significantly less, obviously, with, mm -hmm. with kids. Yeah, and I should but say, the woman I spoke of uh, that I'm coaching is only probably less than three years' experience throwing the hammer. So. Right, that, yeah, that's a important. different, right? Yeah. It's it's and, and always just remember that it's 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 easier to shape or tweak a behavior than it is to change it, and it's um, you know I think sometimes we go in there and we just make assumptions and we, we, we do this all the time when we just watch other athletes of from other coaches and other groups and stuff right oh that guy just moves so bad you know and why you know if I was coaching this person I would do this I would do I would do that it's not that easy it really isn't we've no. got to we've got to respect that process way more I think than what we than what we do mm -hmm. and and you know especially with with running and sprinting it's it's you know I was I was actually talking to um, somebody last week I, I wrote about this um, I don't know, a few years ago now, uh, and I wrote this article based upon this New Yorker article that looked at Dathan Ritzenheim. So Dathan Ritzenheim was a former elite uh, distance runner, um, multiple-time U.S. champion. He was a marathoner. I think prior to that, he was 10K. He, he moved up over the course of time. And he went to train with um, Alberto Salazar at the Nike Oregon Project. And Salazar did this, you know, this series of tests on him, and this, this, this went, went through the screening process, and and essentially said, all right, if you have an opportunity here of not just being one of the guys, you know, that that maybe makes the final but doesn't have an opportunity to to medal, you've got an opportunity to actually be a medalist, 
But this is what we have to do. We've got to change your technique. Not tweak it, not just try to you know, shape it, but change it. You've got to run like this. A different model. Like a different model. So they used, you know, some of the Kenyans as the model, right? And they went through this three or four year process where they actually tried to change his technique to run more like the Kenyans. Now, he was mid-20s, maybe late-20s when they started this. Probably, I think, maybe late-20s. You can kind of guess where, where, where this ended, right? It, it ended really badly. He was, he was hurt for most of the rest of his career. He never really became... And it was never really... Uh, reached his potential because they they went all in on something and, and they knew it was a risk and, and he knew that it was a risk as well. I was Like I said, I was talking to him about it just last week and he says, yeah, I signed up for it. I mean, it's, it's uh, we, you know, um, Salazar said to me that this will be a risk. You know, we can keep on doing what you're doing, but you're going to be just a finalist. You're never going to be a medalist or we can risk making this major tweak to how you run and if it works, You've got a shot. If it doesn't work, you're just going to be here. So it's that was you know I, I I always think about that story and especially with with running man it's 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 I just never really recommend it. Well, you know who especially the if ultimate you, if you've got somebody who's actually you know who's that Paula Radcliffe. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I talked about her actually in that um, in that same article. Yeah, yeah. But the worst thing that they, that anyone could have done with her was to try to change her technique through technical methods, meaning trying to ask her to move in a different way. So they changed her, her technique over time, you know, slightly, based on more mechanical methods. Let's, have her, let's just work on her breathing a little bit, so we'll work on her diaphragm so she can drop her shoulders and start rolling her shoulders a bit better than what she does. We'll work on some of the other things, that, 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 but never anything really technical you know she didn't really think about running right. in a different way she just ran so she always retained her fluidity even though it didn't look fluid it was the most efficient means for her to, for to her solve that fluid. sort of running yeah. puzzle right absolutely yeah i mean you know and i think a lot of that i i don't know i actually met her uh well i mean she's come into our center because we we serviced her but uh i have yeah. i have a pretty interesting paula radcliffe story <laughs> it's pretty funny but um um, Are we, we're not going to hear it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, well, okay, yeah, I will <laughs> in a sec. But no, no, I, I, I was just going to say that I, I, I think those a lot of those changes were not performance-driven changes in that they were, you know, looking at oh, how can we get her to run faster? I think a lot of it was to avoid injury because she was so hurt all the time because she did these insane volumes. At least so I've heard, right? And so she is a. So, yeah, so so when I was running Loughborough there, um, you know, I, of course, I was in charge of all of this performance or all of these, uh, all the support staff and her, her physio, her main physio, the her go to uh, person was Renee Thompson, who was one of our physios in the center. But the issue was, is that Paula who's the track was named after her there actually the the building was named after uh sebco and the track was named after paula because they both went to school there anyways she is a tax exile basically right she lives in france and because she avoids you know she's avoiding the the huge british taxes income taxes and so she can only spend so much time uh a year in um 
in the UK before she gets taxed. And it's not a lot of time. It's like, it's measured in weeks, not months, I think. Anyways, and of course, going into the Olympics in 2012, it was a big issue because she was going to have to spend a certain amount of time in London just to race, right? She ended up not racing, I think. I don't think she did run it in London, but the plan was for her to do so. So anyways, the, and Paula had this reputation of just absolutely consuming every, all the energy out of the, all of the support staff. Like, I mean, oh my God, the way they built it up, it was like, oh my God, Paul, Paula's coming in. Uh, what, what are we going to do? She's, she's going to stay on the table for six hours a day. I mean, literally, I mean, they were freaking out. Right. And I'm just, and, and I'm sitting there going, holy shit, how am I going to do it? Cause it's my job to say no. Right. Cause we had gotten to this point where we had to get a, you know, like one of the, one of the challenges we had with, with that whole center was people, you know, athletes getting overtreated and you know, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, so anyways, this, this was a, just this, they built this up to this huge issue. Who's going to talk to Paula? Who's going to, you know, I was like, well, it's my, I'll talk to Paula. It's my job, right? I mean, I'm the, so she comes in, she, you know, she, she calls up, she says, okay, I'm coming in this day. And typically what she would do is come in for a weekend uh, every few months and she would just, you know, get as much therapy from, from Renee and spend as much time with Renee and a few other uh, practitioners as possible. And it just you know, stress Renee out because she was like, I have other, I have these other athletes I have to see and I can't say, nobody could say no to Paula. They just couldn't <laughs> say no. Right. So anyways, she comes in, I meet her and I say, Hey, how are you doing? You know, good. And I say, Hey, can I chat with you in the office? So we go in, <clears throat> we sit in my office across from the table and we have the, the most pleasant chat. <clears throat> She's a wonderful person by the way or at least in my experience she was fantastic and i just said to her i said hey listen you know we've changed things around here we we've uh we've got to um you know i i have to limit you know the amount of time that you spend with renee because she's got these other athletes we're going into the game blah, blah. she just looked at me and she goes yeah okay no problem no problem i go <laughs> i'm like okay thanks uh that's it <laughs> she goes oh yeah yeah sure sure and she went out and she did it and everything worked out fine and everybody was happy. I was just like, what the hell? You know, but that, but I mean, that really, if you know anything about British athletics and Paula Radcliffe, that, I mean, her name, it just does not get bigger. Right. And so she was, she was such a, a superstar and, you know, anyways, it was, it was interesting, but, but I found her to be really uh, quite a pleasant, lovely person. I've, uh, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with her. Yeah. No, she's nice. Um, nice. anyways, uh, so where were we? I don't know. We, 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 I think we, uh, Oh, you did technique, not technique change. Yes. Technique and then, change. uh, and then we we're talking about dribbles and, uh, I didn't answer something you're about to say. What did, what did intensive I tempo? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You tried to get out of that. No, no, I'm not trying yeah. to get out of that. Well, you did because it's, because it, you, yeah, okay, sure. But um, so, so the, the argument the argument against it is it competes for resources and it it's not fast enough to be specific, but not slow enough to be regenerative, right? Yeah, and we're, we're yeah. If you're talking about the you know the more intensive 
you know, if you look at tempo along, if you look at all running along a continuum and you look at intensive tempo is that, you know, right below, you know, let's call it the 80 to 90% zone, 70, you know, 75 to 90, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. That's well, the we idea. Have to prog- if if, you, if you, all you, we want to do is run at velocities in excess of 95% of our maximum velocity, well, there has to be a... Prog- that whatever, whatever that number is. Well, it's a big. Well, that. That's well, whatever, man. That's it doesn't. It doesn't matter. That's, that's not. That's ninety-five. It's not my point. If all that you want to do is run over X percentage um, of your maximum velocity, there has to be a progression to that X percentage. You can't just go out and run at that percentage. It doesn't matter what that percentage is. You pick your number. Correct. Right. Why? Oh Jesus! Really. Yeah. No, why? Seriously, why? Why does there so, need to be so, a progression? Okay, Derek, I want, you, I want you to go out and buy some spikes, okay? Get out on a, you know, get your shovel out. Shovel out a lane on your local track tomorrow. Run as fast as you can. Let's see what happens. Okay. What do you mean, why? Well, Come on, man. Well, like, well, you, you, you write courses on progressions. No, you listen. understand what progressions are. You, obviously, you have to progress. If we're talking, you, you're, 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 yes, you progress your an volume app- and you progress through intensity. We know this. This is basic stuff. So you don't just go out on a track and run at ninety-five percent. You just cannot do that. You have to. Progress are we talking about progressions throughout an annual plan, or are we talking about long-term progressions? Those are two different things. If we're talking about, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a annual plan. So if your okay. goal is at the end of the season to be running as fast as you possibly can, that mm-hmm. does not mean that we go out on day one and run as fast as you can, and then you do that every day and. Ideally, well, and I think, hopefully we run faster at the end. Well, right? I think we're kind of saying the same thing. We're just talking. I mean, it really depends upon the distance you're talking about. I think you can come back. I think an athlete at the end of the season, let's say they have a successful season sprinting, which ends in August or early September, whatever it is. And they, they take the traditional transition phase month long off and then they come back and they can right off the bat do highly intensive work 90 to 95 percent or better um, as long as the distances are short enough that you know and then the progression is not one of intensity but it's one of distance to excuse me to uh it's why 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 do you keep burping because i'm because i'm I'm because you're just going to have to go I'm in and edit this out. But just stop wine. burping. I, well, it, I can't help it. Why do you keep getting up and going pee all the time? I, anyways, so but maybe it is, uh, you know, the the way I look at it, you know, is you is you would, uh, you know, that's really more a function of the the you know the length of the you know of the uh, of the of the training distances. I mean, you cannot, I mean, I know athletes can take whatever time off, come out and they can run 20 meters balls out right off the bat without hurting themselves. I mean, most of them, I mean, that's exactly what we give, uh, sprinters coming back from hamstring injuries. That's Mock's whole hamstring rehab plan. Right. I mean, so, so are you, which is, which is is dumb. (laughs) According to you, so but, what? I, what <laughs> no, but I'm I'm okay. So, but we got cut off track there. So we're so we're talking about intensive tempo, and you. So and, let's go back to what we were saying before. So let okay. me let me just it's it's 
when you're competing for resources and it's not it's not close enough to be transferable and what i'm saying is when you break down running into its component parts each of those component parts that whether it's extensive tempo intensive tempo speed endurance special endurance whatever it's all pretty similar right you all yeah. you, you strike in the ground within a certain bandwidth of, gra- mm-hmm. of 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 time on the ground you're in the air within a certain bandwidth of them all mm-hmm. and they're all pretty specific they are all specific enough to work on the skill of sprinting. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like there is upright this magical sprint. number, yeah. upright sprinting, there is not this magical number below which is no longer transferable and above which is transferable. Well, in terms Obviously, of skill, the most, it may not be. The, no, it's in, in, terms of, in terms of everything, just like on strength, right? There's not a number which transfer, like, like yes, you can, you can argue that maximum speed uh, sprinting or maximum strength work is has the highest rate of transfer to maximum speed or maximum strength and everything below that has a slightly less of a of a transference okay. or less of a relatedness which is right. a probably in my mind a better word to use but there's no magical number where it stops being no. related you know it's just less related so it's that's 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 the whole problem i have with this this uh, okay, with no stuff between this number and that number but for do, everybody. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm yeah because okay. that goes back to what we were talking about before. But I'm on, using you know, the numbers the to in front of us. It, they, but they just don't mean anything, man. Well, they do mean like for, something. Like, they, like I said, they mean for some, something to me. For some Listen, people. So, but but there is a difference. Okay, so whatever the why, numbers why are. Why are you yelling at me? Because you're I'm your guest on your podcast, and you, I'm your guest. You're, you're the not host, a guest, anymore. and you're, you're interrupting me. You know that. So I'm definitely not a partner. Yeah, well, we're friends, it's called, it's and I treat evil, my friends like shit. It's called shit. the evil chat, not the Macmillan chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but there, you know, but but we can, but we, you, you agree that we can distinguish between extensive tempo and intensive tempo, and 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 you know, uh, maximal or submaximal sprint work. So whatever the numbers are, there is a zone. I think, anyways, a zone. Of tempo in there is and and of course there's other factors it's how you run it right like you can run intensive tempo on grass and flats which has less impact on the body than if you're running you know the same scheme or the same workout on the track and spikes i think you know that's going to have a you know those those are going to have slightly different impacts you know even trying to hit the same with, with the same intensity, they're going to have different impacts on the body, but don't Dif- by the way, but d- different is a different word than better or worse. So you, okay. you, you, you corrected yourself and you say that, yeah, there's going to be a different response or a different adaptation, but it's not necessarily worse or okay. better. So, okay. Uh, okay. So, so we have the, but we have that intensive tempo. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not uh, against intensive tempo. I just, I mean, and I say this all the time. Here, here's, I just, here's, here, here, here's I just thing, think right? that if you are going to do large volumes of intensive tempo in programming, you need to do it in phases or stages or blocks that are away from very highly intensive sprinting. I, I think you do. Yeah, well, yeah, you do. Okay. Uh, that's that's the the bias that you have and the lens in which you look through 
and and for the most part, that's very si- that's very similar to mine. Okay. Right. That's that's where my intuition intuition sort of uh, puts me as well. Okay. Here's the reality. Take the hundred fastest guys, the hundred fastest girls, and they come from intensive tempo based programs, where there's very little separation between intensive tempo work and and maximum speed work. But are uh, that's okay, that's I the reality, right? That's what we deal I don't with. So disagree we with have that. to be. It goes back to what we were talking about before yeah. about being open to things that we may not necessarily understand or we may not necessarily agree with. Yeah, because I didn't that's say I didn't reality. agree with it. I didn't say I didn't agree with it. What I said was that those two. It's and I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very difficult to program with high volumes of intensive tempo and also perform high quality, very intensive, um, high neural speed work in the same, you know, in the same, whatever blocks or cycles. Okay. Because they do. Yes. So I, I would bet that those hundred men or women that are, that are running, uh, you know, that are getting fast from these highly intensive tempo programs are not running the, are not doing a lot, if any of the highly intensive speed work at, in the same cycles at the same time. Would, am I wrong on that? Uh, yes. And yes and no. And maybe, uh, I think there will be time. There will be times within the the yearly training program where they will be doing those at the same time. But you're right. It's it's probably most of the time, more of the time, obviously relative to volume, especially more of the time will be spent doing intensive tempo type work than 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 maximum okay. velocity work. Yeah, and I, that, and that's I kind of my point. Yeah. That's kind of my point from a few conversations ago, where you will have a lot of people that get really fast off of that work. Yeah. Right. Allison Felix being a great example. Right. Mm-hmm. She does a lot of like massive volumes and has been for 20 years and is the greatest uh, female track and field athlete in history. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had taken her and put her into a more polarized program 20 years ago and all she did was max V work and, uh, and, and extensive tempo work, would she be the greatest track and field, uh, f- greatest female track and field athlete in history? Or would she know. be better? Or which you, you don't, yeah, right? We, don't we can't, know. we can't, we can't, we can't run that that program. But it's yeah, it's I, a really interesting. Oh, I'm not done, man. Why okay. you keep interrupting me? It's it's a really interesting conversation, right? It, it really is because I'm like I said, my intuition is similar to you, and my intuition is and and similar to Kevin too, right? He's, it's I try to maximize the uh, the, the opportunities to to move well and fast, and try to ins- and, and try to protect those opportunities. And when we're not doing that, I try to do stuff that's way, way away from that. So we are protecting it. However, I have found over the course, especially of the last 10 years, that that isn't for everybody. And there is many athletes that's, that need and require the work in the middle. And not only from a psychological standpoint, but almost certainly from a physiological standpoint as well. No, I totally agree with that. I to- I, when, when I first started coaching, I had a... Uh... I had a decathlete that I was working with who just, you know, and I was really big into Charlie's uh, system. I'd read his book and it worked so well with uh, a, a number of athletes that I had, all very highly neural and very explosive, but 
Um, I had this one decathlete. I mean, that stuff just did not work for him. He couldn't, you know, in, in his in his case, I, he just couldn't generate the power to make it worthwhile, right? To, you know, to to affect any changes in his body. He needed to, you know, he needed uh, workouts within that range um, to to get faster. It's just the way his physiology was. It had nothing to do with with meant you know it had nothing to do with psychology or anything it could have to some degree but i know for a fact that that was that was all physiological with him and i learned that mm -hmm. too late in the game with him he paid the price for it but um yeah i mean it's no no i totally get it i i don't i don't see any of this as right or wrong i see them as different right i mean it's it's um yeah i mean it's 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 an interesting discussion the problem is is you know the 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 thing I like about your argument, and we talked about this in the last one, was that, and I never considered this before, so I got to hand it to you. But is um, that you know whatever you start off with is real has a huge factor in it because mm, of the yeah. you know whether I don't know whether there's a physiological change or a faith-based change which is a psychological change whatever whatever or not a change but a you know a setting you know an establishing of uh you know the you know what's going to work for that athlete and then down the road you know if that's how they got fast to begin with, it's going to be very hard to move them from that. And I, I you know, I found that quite interesting. I know it's not something I really ever considered before. So I think that's a big factor too. And, and uh, yeah, although, you know, I mean, you know, you look at what Kevin did with Kunkel. Okay. I, I don't know how familiar you are with that story, but I, I, li I was there. I watched this day to day. I lived it with him because I was helping him you know, uh, design, do some of the program design with that. And so Adam Kunkel, I'm talking about an athlete, Adam Kunkel, who was essentially washed up as a 400 meter hurdler, uh, in his mid twenties, uh, and had been very well coached by one of the great, uh, one of the great American, uh, uh, quarter mile coaches and quarter mile hurdle coaches, um, uh, um, Victor Lopez, and Adam had gone down there and had, uh, to Rice, I think, and, and had trained with uh, Victor and had done well, but had run 49 and change. He was one of Canada's top 400-meter hurdlers, but things had been stagnant for quite a while, and I think he'd actually gotten quite a bit slower. And, and he came to Edmonton, and in the first two years, especially the first year, Kevin, you know, we were indoors at the, you know, it was minus 40 outside, throughout the winter we had nothing you know couldn't this guy was so injury prone too it was crazy we never let him run on the on the corner so he couldn't do anything longer than 60 meters but even kevin didn't even let him do that it was for the first year this guy's a quarter mile hurdler he ran nothing further than 30 meters and in that first outdoor season went um 48 six or something like that anyways the, the next two years it was insane he dropped like two seconds off of where he was um with kevin and uh or or with with victor prior to moving to edmonton just off going from the one you know a program which is largely 
you know, is exactly what we've been talking about, you know, high volume and lots of intensive tempo, all that, to the exact opposite, which we've also been talking about, very neuro program, low volume, high intensity, high quality. And it was unbelievable, the change. I don't think you'll find a better example of, of how, um, of, of, you know, of, of, I don't think you'll find a better success story in terms of an athlete going from one paradigm to the next. But here's the thing. <laughs> and we saw this as a trend as well. It lasted for two years. And then in mm-hmm. year three, and I'll never forget this, uh, it just stopped. It just stopped. And he uh, and I will never forget, you know, I mean, things were not going well in, in training. And the and the first couple of uh, meets were really poor. I mean, I, he went from running 40. He set a Canadian record, which I think still stands maybe. It was like 48-6. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, he opens up that year, and he's running 50 point, 50 point, 51 point, I, if I remember. I, I could be wrong, but it was, it was that slow, maybe 49 high. And I will never forget, you know, after a few meets, Kevin was, you know, like, oh God, what's going on? I'll never forget getting the text. He just... After one race, he was in the. He, I was in Edmonton. They were in uh, the U.S. Adam and race, and I get this text. He says, "I'm at a loss." That's all he said. I'm at a loss. I just, I just don't know how to explain this, you know. And and that seemed to be a trend. And I noticed that trend with a lot of athletes that went to Bonderchuk as well. It was same freaking thing, just in a throws in a throws paradigm, right? These are athletes. They all went to Bonnerchuk uh, with, uh, you know, big, you know, coming from big max strength programs, classic American throw system, strong as hell. They weren't quite making it, you know, like doing well, but not, you know, whatever. There's many different, uh, there's many different examples all come from different programs and that, but they would get to, they would get come to Camel, start training with Bonnerchuk, First year, boom, they would take off. Second year, boom, either take off more or slightly less. Year three, crash, right? And couldn't figure it out. And the only, uh, Justin Rohde may be an, uh, an exception to this, but the only real exception to that was Dylan, right? Mm-hmm. Because Dylan, you know, I, I mean, he was, um, but I think it's be- one of, part of it is because Dylan was so strong when Bonderchuk got there that his natural strength and the work I had done with him and I'm not blowing my own horn here I just think he it carried him through that and I think you know the Bonner you know Bonderchuk yeah he, he mean they don't do he doesn't do I I just can't think of any time I've ever seen or heard of him doing any real maximal strength work he stays in that uh you know that uh you know about maybe two-thirds of the way up on the on the force velocity curve and moves everything quickly and and that's as heavy as it ever gets and and i think it just you know it, it was just simply an unloading um uh, effect for a year and an athlete could get a year or two away or get away with it for a year or two and then it and then they would drop off you know i and that's why when I, the way I do it is I try to avoid that by, I actually do push those loads a little more, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you were speaking to there was, was initially the first conclusion bias, right? And what we talked about a few, a few conversations right. ago. And then the sec, the, on the second end of that, on the far end of that, you've got 
last chance bias or desperation bias. All right, this is my last shot. So I'm going to I'm going to go all in because this other stuff just hasn't worked. Right? So it's uh you can take advantage of both of those biases if you understand them. Yeah, I, I don't I mean maybe yeah, I mean maybe it is bias, maybe biases and maybe it isn't. Maybe 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 there is a, you know, maybe you know, to me the the Adam story and a lot of these with Bonnerchuk was just pretty clear right the athletes were just overworked right it wasn't that Mm -hmm. they were doing necessarily the wrong stuff it's just that whatever volumes they were doing were just too much and then when they when they got away from it they you know they responded accordingly but but then as we know that doesn't last long either right yeah so and then it's also about then respecting the who that who that person is and the type of person he or she is too right so adam is uh, and I don't know him. It's just, it's just I've had some interactions with him, uh, but I don't know him obviously like you guys do. He he seems like he's really introspective, and he thinks about things, and is quite logical rather than very emotive and emotional. You know, it's, it's so so you know the first the people or the athletes that cling to this first conclusion bias are generally a little less introspective about the work that they do and a little bit more emotional about it. Where Adam seems to be like he was the opposite of that. Is that is that fair? Yes. Yes, it is. But so he's he would, also so, it'd be, so he would buy into a new way of doing it. Yeah. No, yeah. So oh, he would absolutely. buy into a new absolutely. way of doing things more than someone who's a little yes. bit more all right, I'm not really thinking about why I'm no. fast. I'm just fast no. because of this. Yeah, that's a right. good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. For sure. For, for sure. Very high-strung dude. But yes, also very logical thinker. Very, you know, um, you know, likes to likes to analyze, pick things apart. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if it, you know, if if you can, if it makes sense to him, he's all in, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So. So where do we go? I think you got to go, right? Twelve, it's two forty. No, I no, I I don't have to be there for another uh, forty-five minutes. I don't. I I got another fifteen twenty. Do we want to oh, okay. end it there? I mean, we're going. We've been going for an hour and a half. It's up to you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if if what's what's the, what's the sweet spot for people? When do they get sick of listening to us after three minutes or uh, an hour uh, and thirty-three minutes? That's about right. Um, I don't know. Let me. Why don't I throw a softball at you? Oh, jeez. Okay. All right. Throw it to me. Uh, See what let I got. Me, let me. Let me. Let me pull it up first. Hang on. Let me. I'm looking at these pictures here of you digging out through the snow to get to your hammer circle. Man, you are committed for a guy who's old. Oh fuck. Like man. you're a 55 year old coach to still have this commitment level. I I, I applaud you. Dude. I would say, you know, if I if it's, this is me, I'm I'm taking the week off, man. There's no way I'm getting out there doing this. But you're, you're you're shoveling through four feet of snow here. Yeah, it was it was it was four feet and places. It was crazy, but we have no choice. Otherwise, we're not thrown at all. And uh, that that's what girl I mean. I, mean, is, you, is quite I, I would be Plan B in for a week. Yeah, there is no Plan B. Yeah. There, there 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 just oh. isn't in this situation we're in. And Plan B would be thrown into a net, but. Um, it was, it's still there. There's still a foot there. It's, it hasn't melted and it's, and it's, I'm telling you, man, I was exhausted. It was just, it was, it was something else, but, uh, but yeah, no, no. Oh oh my God. And, and that started February 1st, the same day as the squats. It was, yeah, 
anyways, uh, okay, so, uh, oh, here's, oh, I got a good one. All right, so I think we've I think we've exhausted that topic enough. Let's 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 and I gotta go and you gotta go, but I want uh, you know we we got a bit more time to do one softball. Let's or I guess I call them softballs. But what's your biggest single fuck up as a coach that led to a disastrous performance? Like, give me a concrete example of a. Um, and I get yeah, well. I guess I could ask you what's your proudest performance moment as a coach, but what's your uh, you know just to sort of balance that out. But let's start with what's you know what's your what's your biggest single screw up that that cost an athlete. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've made a few. Um, I actually I, I built a presentation around this that I did a few years ago after 2016. I made like five or six pretty major mistakes in 2016 that cost the athletes I was coaching. Um, let's say, let's, let's, let's go with, with uh, well, we were talking about Amir a little bit earlier, so we'll talk about Amir. Um, Amir had opened up the season, like he was, he was training great. And then we had, a, we had a superstar group, like it was a super, super group. It was Amir Webb, uh, Andre DeGrasse, CJ Uja, um, Wilfred Kofi, um, you know, there's, there's just a bunch of guys that were running 10 flat or under or really close. And um, and uh, Amir opened up the year running 10.03 at our local meet. He was actually Kofi beat him. Kofi set the Ivory Coast uh, national record running 10.01. Amir was 10.03. And then the next week we went to Mount Sac where Amir won the 100 in 9.90. Windy. It was just I think it was a two point four. Yeah, I think I was and there then, actually. And then ran nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety one. I might have had those backwards. It could be nine ninety one and nineteen ninety. And that was legal. That was his first time under twenty. And you run fast in a you know the reason why you do these early meets is so you can get lanes in the big meets, right? So it's you, you try to choose the meets where you can run fast. You know we kind of get him ready for it. I knew he was ready to run fast, and if the wind was going to be good, I, I knew he was going to get close to going under 20. So he ran 19.90, and that basically got him a lane or guaranteed him a lane in all the Diamond Leagues for that, for that season. So his first Diamond League uh, race was three weeks later in Doha, and he went and ran 19.85, I believe, 84 or 85. Won the race, uh, came back. And then we're just getting ready for the rest of the circuit. And we, we designed a little circuit with, with him and, and, his, and, his, uh, and his agent. And this is a guy that had never been outside of California prior to going to college. He went to college in, in Texas, at Texas A&M. Hated it. You know, wanted, wanted to go back to California after his first day. Tells me the story of him after the first week of practice sitting in the head coach's office you know, begging, begging to let him go home. He just doesn't want to wow. be there anymore. He wants to go home, right? Just just doesn't like traveling, doesn't like to be anywhere other than in California. So we tried to design a, you know, a, a circuit or, or arrange a circuit that's, that's we'll put him on the road and get him a few meets, but not have him away for too long. So we had four meets over the course of two weeks, starting in Rome. So we go to, uh, and then we got Rome, Birmingham, Oslo, and then uh, Lucerne. <clears throat> so we go to Rome, 
and he's I know he's going to win the 200. We're there to run the 200. He's got a 100 in Birmingham, and then a 100 in Oslo, and then a 200 in Lucerne. And I know he's going to win the 200. It's a pretty good field, but he's 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 in great shape. And um, and I, so we set up the strategy of the race. I said it'll, the race will be over by 120, so you can just sort of you know do whatever after that. We've got three more races, so don't go out and try and run anything crazy. Just 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 win. So he comes off the bend, he destroys everybody off the bend, rolls by everybody, runs 20.04 and wins the race. And, um, sorry, prior to that, he actually, the, the meet director came to me and said, hey, do you want to, um, does Amir want to run 100? I've got a lane open up, someone's pulled out of the 100, do you want to run it? So I look at the schedule and, and it's an hour after the 200. I said, that's, that's pretty tight, right? But, it's, mm -hmm. but I talked to Amir and this would be his first Diamond League 100, he wants to do it, it's a hot field. You know, Gatlin's in it. There's a bunch of guys. It's it's a pretty hot race. So, so um, he runs the 200, and I and I, I told him prior to going out for this 200. Hey, remember, we got the 100, so get back here pretty quick, right? He f totally forgets that. He he's so excited about winning the 200. He does a lap of honor, you know, going around signing autographs, taking pictures, shaking people's hands. Does this doesn't take his spikes off. Generally, you do the lap of honor, you take oh, your spikes no. off, right? Because it's it's not it's not fun to jog 400 meters in your spikes. So he finally figures out. Oh man, I got 100 in in now 45 minutes. Races back to the warm up track. He says, "Coach, I totally forgot about the the 100. I'm I'm cramping up. I'm feeling terrible." So I get him on the table. I'm working on him and working through him, and and we get him uh, to the point where he's uncomfortable enough with him to go out there. Uh, and and at least compete, but he's probably not going to run fast, right? He's just all right. We've done it. We 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 spend a half an hour on the table, two strides, get back in the call in the in the in the call room, and get out there and just just run the race. Well, it turns out he ran 9.94, almost ran ran down Gatlin. He almost wow. he stumbles on his third third step, almost fell over, panics, gets up and just runs down the entire field and and loses the race by two thousandths. And to this day, that's his PR. So this is the best day this guy's ever had, right? He just ran 2004, won, won a Diamond League. An hour later, he ran 9.94. And this is, this is huge, like uh, just a, a huge load to the system. And I remember Dan and, and Donovan telling me about this, you know, 20 years prior. You know, whenever Donovan would go on the road and run set 10, that would be it. You know, Dan would call him back, say, that's, that's enough. You know, we don't, need to, we don't need to get squeeze more out of you, right? It's... Uh, this is a massive load. I need you back. We'll get some treatment, get some therapy. Let's get ready for the next one. So that's going through my head at this point. All right, do, oh, I, no. do I pull a mirror out of these next three races? Now, the, uh, the flip side of this is in these next three races, he's going to see all of his competitors that he needs to race and beat in Rio. And I thought it was at that point, it's pretty, it's important to see them. You know, and to understand them, and to feel them, and to line up next to them, and, of and, course. To, and not go to Rio and that be your first opportunity. Yes. Remember, this is his first year as an international mm -hmm. guy getting on the on the big circuit, mm -hmm. right? So, he's only done two Diamond Leagues at this point. We need more experiences than that. So I'm thinking, all right, we this is what I'm weighing. Do we stay out here, have these experiences, get to race against everybody, and within these next three races, he would see everybody that he would need to beat, other than Usain Bolt. Um, which you know you can't you can't practice to beat Usain Bolt anyway, so it doesn't matter. So it's but he sees everyone else, including Andre. You know Andre's going to be in Birmingham. Um, so we decide, yeah, we're going to do it. We go to Birmingham, runs a 200, he comes fifth 
it's cold, it's, it's, we run in, it's, it's raining, it's a negative 2.1. Andre wins that race in 2016, and Amir runs 2040-something, and he's miserable. And now uh, this is only going to go one way, but it's, it's too late to recognize it. You know, it's, it's, if, if I really had an in-depth conversation with him right after Birmingham, we probably would have made the, the choice to go home because he's now miserable, right? He's, he's a, on a high after Rome, but now he's in England. It's raining. He's got the crappy English food. He's miserable. And we're off to Oslo, and Oslo's cold and raining and miserable. And he races in Oslo. He, came fifth, he comes fifth in the 100. He runs 10.18. Three days later, we're in Lucerne. Lucerne is... If you've been to Lucerne, it's a beautiful, beautiful little little town in, in Switzerland that yeah. is always sunny. It's always sunny in Lucerne. So I'm thinking, all right, it's going to be nice in Lucerne. It's a fairly fast track. You know, it's an easy win for him because he's not against a, it's not a hot, hot field. We'll go, we'll go there and, and we, can, we can salvage this, right? Well, turns out Lucerne is like 40 degrees Fahrenheit, raining sideways. And, and it's, oh, it's terrible terrible and he's out there and they they hold them out there in in the rain and the cold for 15 minutes prior to sending them well he, run, he runs 2087 i think or 2084 like you know a second slower than he ran right. you know uh, two weeks prior and now he's 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 just miserable right he's not only just does he want to go home now he doesn't even want to go home to phoenix he wants to go home to california because remember this is a california kid doesn't want yeah. to leave california he wants to go home and, and spend yeah he's got his tail his... between his legs and he's yeah yeah, yeah. A- absolutely he just wants to go home and and have just fair enough you know, just see his family right so i said all right go home take 10 days and we'll do we'll i just want you on those 10 days just get out and do a few warm-ups you know you we've had a we've had a good good little go out here but just go out there and uh, take 10 days kind of off you know just regen because I knew that emotionally mentally he needed to get away from track for a little bit mm-hmm. 10 days later he comes back to Phoenix and we've got we've got 10 more days prior to Olympic trials and he's looking okay you know it's we're, I'm still confident that he's going to make the team he's I, I know he's got to pretty much just run sub 20 and he'll be on the team and I think all right we've got three weeks uh, in total, we've got another 10 days to just sharpen him up, make sure he's healthy. Um, and things are going okay. So it's, I'm not super confident when I get up to, when we get up to Oregon, but I'm confident enough that all right, I, th- I think we'll be okay here. Uh, kind of not knowing at this time, by the way, of these two high school kids named Noah Lyles and Michael Norman. They were both in the 200 that right. I'd never heard of, right? <laughs> These, this is their, this is both of these kids coming out party. Was this 200 meter final? Oh, Jesus, yeah. Or in, I think in Norman's case was in the semifinal where he ran 2009 or something. Yeah, I remember in, that. In the, yeah. in the semi, but anyways, it's um, you know, he, Amir jogged the the heat, looked good, looked comfortable, ran then 1997 in the semi. I said, well, all right, we're okay. You know, he's he's fine. And we're, we're back on track for him having the opportunity or having a chance to win a medal in Rio. Um, and then runs the final. And I can't remember where lane he's in, like lane six, I think he's in. And he looks across and he, and he sees, I think it was Lyles that he saw or Norman, one of the two kids. And he thought he was coming on him. So he leans at the line like way too early and, mm. and, and super stretches his, his leg out, way out in front of him. And he, and he wasn't. He was, he was two tenths ahead of this kid. It, it wasn't a problem. He ran 20 flat in the final. But tears his hamstring on the line. 
and now we've got 40 days prior to uh. real and the guys guys just got a, a grade one hamstring tear now does any and then you know make a long story short we rehab it but it's not going to go well like he's no longer a, a, and he had a, a legit shot to medal obviously he'd beaten most of the guys Andre ended up winning winning silver obviously and 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 Amir would have been really close to that so he would have he would have either beaten Andre or 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 probably more likely come third in that race um Wow. And I just wonder, in hindsight, if <laughs> we know that it wouldn't have happened that way, right? If, if, if I'd sent him home after Rome rather than keeping him over there and then having to take that 10 days off and then having to really, all right, we've got to sharpen him up and kind of racing through that, all of that rather than going to Oregon to sneak in onto the team running 20 flat, would he have won trials easily running 19.8? not have to worry about it. His hamstring would have been fine, gone to Rio, confident, feeling great, and gone out there and run 19.7, 19.8 and got a medal. So that's, that's, um, that's probably the biggest mistake I've made because I do think that that cost a mirror medal. Um, but I don't know in hindsight if I would have done anything different, right? That's a really... Yeah. No, at the, I hear, at the my, time, it was a really challenging yeah. um, decision. Hindsight's always 20-20. My, my story... My, my answer to this is very similar, actually. And we don't, you know, and you and I don't, we don't ever talk about this stuff beforehand. So it's, it's interesting because mine's uh, almost identical, but in a different event. So listen to this. So in 2015, um, I'm coaching Sultana Purcell. And uh, 2014 was a, was a huge year for her when she left Bonnerchuk, came with came to me and it, uh, you know, broken Canadian record and was just had a stellar year and training in 2015, um, up into May was, uh, was better than even the year before. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. And because of, uh, what she had done the year before she started getting into, you know, some of the bigger hammer meets again, because she had, you know, she went through some rough years there where she was, uh, not throwing so good. And anyways, so she gets into, um, she gets into the meet in Kawasaki. Okay. In, in, in the women's hammer, of course. So she goes to Kawasaki and, the plan was, the plan was there was a meet in Beijing the following weekend. Okay. So it's like Friday, Saturday, Kawasaki. Then it was, then she was going to go to Beijing and compete there and then go to around the world to Ostrava for two weeks later for the, um, what, what is, I think it was like the women's hammer final, right? Uh, the IAAF final or something like that. It was a big, big event in, in Ostrava. Maybe it was just the Ostrava women's hammer. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyways, it was in Ostrava. It was that meet. It was great. Anyways, so I, you know, she's throwing very well in workout. She goes to Kawasaki. She doesn't PB, but she has by far the best meet of her life. She all six throws over 73 meters. I think four of them over 74. Um, you know, I think she comes second. She almost had it won. I think she lost in the on the last round. Um, anyways, just super stellar, stellar beat. Well, 
leading into Kawasaki, we couldn't get accommodation. We, I couldn't get anybody, like we couldn't find a place for her to stay and train in Asia. So she decides that she wants, you know, I says, well, just, you know, like go, go to Kawasaki, let's forget about Beijing and let's, let's just go to, uh, we'll go to, you come back home and we'll have time to recover and then go to Ostrava from North America. She goes, no, no, I want to go to Beijing. I want to go to Beijing, you know, cause she was, you know, really into it. And I'm like, you know, and it, 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 this brings up a really interesting issue that we could, we, I don't know if we have time to discuss now, but you know, how much do you control your athlete? Like how, how much do you try to, you know, you know, like, you know, like when do you put the foot down and say no, and, you know, use your authority to stop them from doing something stupid. You got to remember, this is a 30 year old woman who's, you know, uh, not, not a kid learning. This is a woman with a ton of experience and, but prone to making poor choices at times. Let's, let's put it that way. So, um, or at least in my opinion. And so, so what happens? She, she goes to Kawasaki, throws great, comes back home to Kamloops from Kawasaki, gets off the plane, comes to work out the next day. You know, she says, yeah, I feel great. I feel great. Okay, so this comes, you know, I, and, and at the time in the, in, the, uh, in the cycle we were training in, she was throwing a five kilo and a three kilo hammer, Okay. And she, I'm not kidding you, man. She gets off the plane. She comes to work out the next day. She throws 65-75 with a 5K and 85-50 with a 3K, okay? There is no way that that is not 76, 77 meters, okay? For, I mean, this would, and which would have put her in the top two or three in the world. Probably number one at that time, right? She's in incredible shape. So, and those are, she, she throws the five kilo the first day off the plane, the three kilo the second. And I'm like, look, you have never thrown this well. You had a great meet in Kawasaki, meet of your life. Skip Beijing. Let's skip Beijing. Don't go to Beijing. Drop it back out of it. I'm not even sure we should go to Ostrava, okay? You know, because world champs is this is that year. And I'm saying, you know, like you you want to go to Asia. You, you just got back from Asia. You want to go back to Asia. Then you want to go to Europe. Then you want to come home. And then you want to go back to Asia for world championships, like three times to Asia in, you know, doing that three times in a year is bad enough, let alone two of those times being in the same week, right? And she's, nope, nope, I want to go. I'm, and I should have just, I said, well, uh, well, you're, you're, you know, okay. You're a, you're a big girl. You make your own decisions. You sure you want to do this? Yep. I should have put my foot down. She mm -hmm. goes to, she goes to, uh, she goes to Beijing, throws 7136. Okay. And I'm like, uh, and I could just see the fatigue in her, right? Like it's not good. Then she gets on a plane, goes uh, the other way around the world to Ostrava Okay, and throws seventy ninety four. <laughs> then she goes, and then we have nationals. So she goes to nationals a few weeks later. Throws seventy eighty nine. That was the last time in either a meet or a practice with me ever in her life in her career that she ever threw seventy meters. She plummeted. She just she wow. just it all caught up to her. She she didn't make the final. Well, 
I got her back over 70 meters the day before qualifying in practice in in Korea when we were in Korea. Um, and but that was the last um, or sorry, uh, uh, which uh, Daegu, Daegu, I think it was. No, which which world champs was it? We were in Jeju. I can't yeah, Daegu was 2011. No, no, no. I'm. Uh, what was two, What was 2015? Where was World Champs in 2015? Beijing. Oh, it was Beijing. Beijing. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry. It was Beijing. So, so, and so the day before uh, the qualifying rounds in Beijing, you know, she throws like 70, 50 in practice, but she goes into qualifying the next day, and that's it. She's toast. She she doesn't qualify, and that was the end of it. And then we, you know, parted ways. Uh, at the end of that year. And so, you know, and I always wonder, same as you, I wonder, you know, I, sh you know, had I have put my foot down after, mm -hmm. after the Kawasaki meet, when she was in such stellar shape, ha had I put my foot down, said, no, you're not going, you know, maybe, uh, you know, forced an argument, <laughs> you know, would, would things have gone differently? Cause she never recovered. She never recovered. And we actually, you know, in order to, to, to deal with all this, we actually uh, tapped into one of the Calgary uh, uh, experts on uh, travel. And I forget what the doc's name is. You probably know the guy. And when I when we told we had a Skype call with this guy. And when we told him that story, he was just like, you, you what? He went, you, 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 you went to Asia, competed, came back the next weekend, went back to Asia and then flew around to Europe. And she, he said, he said, he said to us, he said, it could take a year and a half to recover from that. <laughs> Those were his words. And I'm like, oh, there we go. So anyways, that's my biggest. That, 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 that might be slight hyperbole, a year and a half. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Uh, he might, yeah and I may be embellishing <laughs> it, but I know he said a year for sure. He's, uh -huh. he's, he said it could uh -huh. take you a year to recover from something like that. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was, it was just terrible. Well, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that, that maybe give us an interesting uh, topic for conversation next time about, you know, how do we go about making those decisions and how we, how we work with the athletes to, uh, you know, to, to in, in, in a, uh, in an effective way to make those types of decisions that affect their lives a lot more yeah. than they affect our lives yeah and you it's know? different it's, for uh, different coaches in different situations right like you know yeah, i mean some absolutely. coaches can afford to just not deal with any of that because you have enough talent yeah you know some yeah. can't all right man thanks yeah. i really appreciate right, it buddy. this time around the feedback's been really good especially yours i hate to say this but especially your additions have been really good of course no one's going to hear this because nobody ever makes it to the end of the podcast but uh, mm -hmm. uh, thanks a lot for everything. And let's, uh, I look forward to next time. Appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you All soon. All right, brother. Take it easy. All right, bud.